Chapter Sixteen of The Devil's Paw by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com. Chapter Sixteen. Julian, duly embarked upon his mission, was kept waiting an unexpectedly short time in the large but gloomy apartment into which Mr. Stenson's butler had somewhat doubtfully ushered him. The Prime Minister entered with an air of slight hurry. He was also somewhat surprised. "'My dear Orden!' he exclaimed, holding out his hand. "'What can I do for you?' "'A great deal,' Julian replied gravely. First of all, though, I have an explanation to make. I am afraid Mr. Stenson regretted that I am too much engaged this evening to enter into any personal matters. I am expecting a messenger here on very important official business. I am that messenger, Julian announced. Mr. Stenson started. His visitor's tone was serious and convincing. I fear that we are at loggerheads. It is an envoy from the Labour Party whom I am expecting. I am that envoy. You? Mr. Stenson exclaimed in blank bewilderment. I ought to explain a little further, perhaps. I have been writing on labor questions for some time under the pseudonym of Paul Fisk. Paul Fisk? Mr. Stenson gasped. You? Paul Fisk? Julian nodded assent. You are amazed, of course, he proceeded, but it is nevertheless the truth. The fact has just come to light and I have been invited to join this new emergency council, composed of one or two socialists and writers, amongst them a very distinguished prelate, labor members of parliament, and representatives of the various trades unions, a body of men which you doubtless know all about. I attended a meeting at Westminster an hour ago, and I was entrusted with this commission to you. Mr. Stenson sat down suddenly. God bless my soul, he exclaimed. You, Julian Orden, there was a moment's silence. Mr. Stenson, however, was a man of immense recuperative powers. He assimilated the new situation without further protest. You have given me the surprise of my life, Warden, he confessed. That, however, is a personal matter. Hannaway Wells is in the study. You have no objection, I suppose, to his being present? None whatever. Mr. Stenson rang the bell, and in a few minutes they were joined by his colleague. The former wasted no time in explanations. "'You will doubtless be as astonished as I was, Wells,' he said, to learn that our friend Julian Orden comes here as the representative of the new Labour Council. His qualifications, amongst others, are that, under the pseudonym of Paul Fisk, he is the writer of those wonderful articles which have been the beacon-light and the inspiration of the Labour Party for the last year.' Mr. Hannaway Wells prided himself upon never being surprised. This time the only way he could preserve his reputation was by holding his tongue. "'We are now prepared to hear your mission,' Mr. Stenson continued, turning to his visitor. "'I imagine,' Julian began, "'that you know something about this new Labour Council.' "'What little we do know,' Mr. Stenson answered, "'we have learnt with great difficulty through our secret service. I gather that a small league of men has been formed within a mile of the Houses of Parliament, who, whatever their motives may be, have been guilty of a treasonable and traitorous communication with the enemy. Strictly speaking, you are, without doubt, perfectly right, Julian acknowledged. Mr. Stenson switched on an electric light. Sit down, Orton, he invited. There is no need for us to stand glaring at one another. There is enough of real importance in the nature of our interview without making melodrama of it. 
The Prime Minister threw himself into an easy chair. Julian, with a little sigh of relief, selected a high-backed oak chair and rested his foot upon a hassock. Hannaway Wells remained standing upon the hearthrug. "'Straight into the heart of it, please, Orden,' Mr. Stenson begged. "'Let us know how far this accursed conspiracy has gone.' "'It has gone to very great lengths,' Julian declared. "'Certain members of this newly formed Council of Labour have been in communication for some months with the Socialist Party in Germany. From these latter they have received a definite and authentic proposal of peace, countersigned by the three most important men in Germany. That proposal of peace I am here to lay before you, with the request that you act upon it without delay. Julian produced his roll of papers. The two men remained motionless. The great issue had been reached with almost paralyzing rapidity. My advice, Mr. Hannaway Wells said bluntly, is that you, sir, turning to his chief, refuse to discuss or consider these proposals or to examine that document. I submit that you are the head of His Majesty's government, and any communication emanating from a foreign country should be addressed to you. If you ever consider this matter and discuss it with Mr. Orden here, you associate yourself with a traitorous breach of the law. Mr. Stenson made no immediate reply. He looked towards Julian as though to hear what he had to say. Mr. Hannaway Wells' advice is without doubt technically correct, Julian admitted. But the whole subject is too great, and the issues involved too awful for etiquette or even propriety to count. It is for you, sir, to decide what is best for the country. You commit yourself to nothing by reading the proposals, and I suggest that you do so. We will read them, Mr. Stenson decided. Julian passed over the papers. The two men crossed the room and leaned over the Prime Minister's writing table. Mr. Stenson drew down the electric light, and they remained there in close confabulation for about a quarter of an hour. Julian sat with his back turned towards them and his ears closed. In this atmosphere of government his own position seemed to him weird and fantastic. A sense of unreality cumbered his thoughts. Even this brief pause in the actual negotiations filled him with doubts. He could scarcely believe that it was he who was to dictate terms to the man who was responsible for the government of the country, that it was he who was to force a decision pregnant with far-reaching consequences to the entire world. The figures of Fenn and Bright loomed up ominously before him, however hard he tried to push them into the background. Was it the mandate of such men as these that he was carrying? Presently the two ministers returned to their places. Julian had heard their voices for the last few minutes without being able to distinguish a word of their actual conversation. "'We have considered the document you have brought, Orden,' the Prime Minister said, "'and we frankly admit that we find its contents surprising. The terms of peace suggested form a perfectly possible basis for negotiations.' At the same time, you are probably aware that it has not been in the mind of His Majesty's ministers to discuss terms of peace at all with the present administration of Germany. These terms, Julian reminded him, are dictated not by the Kaiser and his advisers, but by the Socialist and Labour Party. It is strange, Mr. Stenson pointed out, that we have heard so little of that party. It is even astonishing that we should find them in a position to be able to dictate terms of peace to the Hohenzorns. You do not dispute the authenticity of this document, Julian asked. I will not go so far as that, 
Mr. Stenson replied cautiously. Our Secret Service informed us some time ago that Freisner, the head of the German Socialists, was in communication with certain people in this country. I have no doubt whatever that these are the proposals of the authorized Socialist Party of Germany. What I do not understand is how they have suddenly acquired the strength to induce proposals of peace such as these. It has been suggested, Julian said, that even the Hohenzollerns, even the military clique of Germany, see before them now the impossibility of reaping the rewards of their successful campaigns. Peace is becoming a necessity to them. They would prefer, therefore, to seem to yield to the demands of their socialists rather than to foreign pressure. That may be so, Mr. Stenson admitted. Let us proceed. The first part of your duty, Orden, is finished. What else have you to say? I am instructed, Julian announced, to appeal to you to sue at once through the Spanish ambassador for an armistice while these terms are considered and arrangements made for discussing them. And if I refuse, I will not evade even that question. Of the twenty-three members of the new Council of Labor, twenty represent the trades unions of the great industries of the kingdom. Those twenty will unanimously proclaim a general strike if you should refuse the proposed armistice. In other words, Mr. Stenson observed dryly, they will scuttle the ship themselves. Do you approve of these tactics? I decline to answer that question, Julian said. But I would point out to you that when you acknowledged yourself defeated by the miners of South Wales, you pointed the way to some such crisis as this. That may be true, Mr. Stenson acknowledged. I have only at this moment, however, to deal with the present condition of affairs. Do you seriously believe that, if I make the only answer which at present seems to me possible, the Council of Labor, as they call themselves, will adopt the measures they threaten? I believe they will, Julian declared gravely. I believe that the country looks upon any continuation of this war as a continuation of unnecessary and ghastly slaughter. To appreciably change the military situation would mean the sacrifice of millions more lives would mean the continuation of the war for another two years. I believe that the people of Germany who count are of the same opinion. I believe that the inevitable change of government in Germany will show us a nation freed from this hideous lust for conquest, a nation with whom, when she is purged of the poison of these last years, we can exist fraternally and with mutual benefit. You are a very sanguine man, Mr. Orden, Hannaway Wells remarked. I have never found, Julian replied, that the pessimist walks with his head turned towards the truth. How long have I, the Prime Minister asked, after a brief pause, for my reply? Twenty-four hours, Julian told him, during which time it is hoped that you will communicate with our allies and pave the way for a further understanding. The Council of Labor asks you for no pledge as to their safety. We know quite well that all of us are, legally speaking, guilty of treason. On the other hand, a single step towards the curtailment of our liberties will mean the paralysis of every industry in the United Kingdom. I realize the position perfectly, Mr. Stenson observed dryly. I do not exactly know what to say to you personally, Orden, he added. Perhaps it is as well for us that the Council should have chosen an ambassador with whom discussion at any rate is possible. Nevertheless, I feel bound to remind you that you have taken upon your shoulders, considering your birth and education, one of the most perilous loads which any man could carry. I have weighed the consequences, Julian replied, with a sudden 
and curious sadness in his tone. I know how the name of pacifist stinks in the nostrils. I know how far we are committed as a nation to a peace won by force of arms. I know how our British blood boils at the thought of leaving a foreign country with as many military advantages as Germany has acquired. But I feel, too, that there is the other side. I have brought you evidence that it is not the German nation against whom we fight, man against man, human being against human being. It is my belief that autocracy and the dynasty of the Hohenzollerns will crumble into ruin as a result of today's negotiations, just as surely as though we sacrificed God knows how many more lives to achieve a greater measure of military triumph. The Prime Minister rang the bell. You are an honest man, Julian Orden, he said, and a decent emissary. You will reply that we take the twenty-four hours for reflection. That means that we shall meet at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. He held out his hand in farewell, an action which somehow sent Julian away a happier man. End of chapter 16. Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.